You're listening to Gate City Podcast. Today, we continue our series, Neighborhoods to Nations, with our lead pastor, Dustin. For more information on our church and our house of prayer, please visit GateCityATL.com. All right, so this morning, I want to take a few moments and talk about getting out of the bubble, getting out of the bubble. Now, what you may say, what is the bubble? First, let me tell you this. The bubble is real. The bubble is real. Now, for many of us, maybe not you, but me and I know many others, we find ourselves, if we've been a Christian for more than a year or two, there's the tendency to get in a Christian bubble and disconnect ourselves from the world around us. We know this to be true, at least I do. We become a Christian, we get into the, to, to the safety of the church and relationships and we begin to find friends and we build our friends around us that are Christians. We start attending only Christian social gatherings so we, we get right there and man, we, we find out there's even Christian entertainment and, and, and Christian movies and Christian music and, and Christian comedy. And we, and we begin to immerse ourselves in all these things. There's even Christian news you can watch. And, and, and there's, I mean, there's just a variety of things. And we, we can begin to immerse ourselves in that. And it is a good thing. But one of the potential unintended consequences of that is we begin to put ourselves in a bubble and to disconnect ourselves from the world around us. Now, certainly part of this is healthy. Community, spiritual family is a big deal. But even in your biological family, your mom and your dad and where you live, even within that type of family, you don't always just stay at home and stay with each other. Even in a biological family, the kids probably go to school. I hope somebody goes to school. Even in a biological family, most of us probably have to go to a job and actually clock in and actually engage the world around us from a vocational standpoint, and that vocation may not be necessarily Christian. So even in our biological families, we're accustomed to engaging the, the world, but sometimes we lose philosophical consistency in our spiritual life and we withdraw to the safety of a spiritual community. Now, let me just say something that might be a little hard to hear, but I think perhaps in Western Christianity that we base a little bit too much emphasis on safety, on protection, and on security. Can I just say that? I think we can let our decision-making process be way too informed by what's going to keep me safe and my family safe, my kids safe and my grandkids safe. And we factor that in a lot to the equation of how we interact with the world around us. Now, it doesn't mean that we're called to throw caution to the wind, but I believe in my understanding of Scripture and the calling of God on every Christian that the Christian life is not necessarily a safe life as we understand it. In fact, I understand the call of God as a Christian will oftentimes put every one of us who seek to be fully devoted followers of Jesus to go and put ourselves in harm's way for the sake of the gospel. Do you believe this? 
But we, are, we can get affected by a spirit of fear and it causes us to retract and pull back on the altar of safety and protection when Jesus is the one that says, no, launch out into the deep. Go to the uttermost parts of the world and to put ourselves in there. And the truth is, it may cost us our life. I believe the gospel is the freest gift on the planet that will cost us everything. You know, the freest gifts are the most expensive gifts. And they're very expensive. And it costs us everything. So what I would like to do in our, in our short conversation this morning is to evaluate ourselves and do a little self-assessment um, on maybe how much in the bubble am I really how concerned I am about my own personal safety and security and protection when it comes to actually fulfilling the call of God in our life. For most of us, I think the realization is, is that we don't have to sell everything and move under a bridge and reach the homeless. Potentially that could be you, but that may not necessarily be true. For most of us is actually understanding who we are in the workplace and where our regular routines and assignments take us from day to day. That we don't disconnect our purposes as a Christian from our purposes in earning a paycheck and taking care of our family. That they are meant to be in tandem with each other and go with us wherever we go. If we begin to view life in that context and not play it safe. The scripture teaches us that we are both a letter to be read and an aroma to be smelled in the world around us. I love these two scriptures. The first one is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a few passages we're going to be in. So you can be in 2 Corinthians for a moment. And then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 1 and chapter 8 for a half a second. So you can keep your finger there. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 2, Paul tells us that you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, look at this, known and read by who? By everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. That means wherever we go in life, we are a letter that everyone is reading. The question for us to ask is what are they reading? What's the text of our life? What are they reading when they experience us? It's any wonder that Paul is going to say that we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of the call of God on our life. Because we are Christians 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We don't just put ourselves in Christian gear on a Sunday morning for a few hours and a Wednesday night and maybe a home fellowship. That's like the Christian part of our life. And then we have the work part of our life. And then we have the family part of our life. And then we have the entertainment part of our life. And we ebb and flow through these different sectors. That's not how we're called to live. Jesus is not, should not just be the first place. He should be in every place. He's the first place in everything, in every sphere, in every quadrant, in every relationship. Jesus is preeminent in all of it and influencing us in every area. Therefore, we become his letter wherever we go. That's why evangelism should not in, 
intimidate us because it is who we are by nature as the people of God. We're his letter wherever we go. We're not only his letter, I'm fascinated by this, but we're also his aroma. People smell us. You know that, right? Have you ever been in context or close counters with somebody that you got to smell them? We've done that, haven't you? There was an old guy in our church back in Dalton, Georgia in the mid-90s where I was an associate pastor. And he was actually the founding member of the church, Brother Murphy was his name, Lawrence Murphy. Everybody called him Brother Murphy. He was um, in his mid-70s. And I remember a dear, beautiful man, and he loved to pray for people, but his halitosis was remarkable. <laughs> he would pray for you, and the odor that came out of his mouth was very difficult to focus on Jesus when he was praying for you. And, you know, that odor marked me a little bit. Even though he was a good man, he wasn't very attentive to the aroma he was putting out. Right? How we smell to people is really very important. Not just in the natural, obviously. Now, if you have natural body odor issues, that's a separate conversation about hygiene we can deal with in another message. Right? At least put on a little something. But we actually exude a spiritual aroma that people get to whiff. And when they smell that, it's going to elicit one of two reactions when they smell us. Are you ready for this? 2 Corinthians 2.15, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently. Everybody say differently. That means everybody ain't going to like you. All right. It's perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are Dreadful, a dreadful smell of death and doom. What does that mean? Don't be surprised when you are living an extroverted Christian life, you are making an effort for your letter to be read and your aroma to be smelled, some people are not going to like it. And they might actually distance themselves from you and they might not end up being your best friend. In other words, our very nature, our aroma, and the letter in which who we are, sometimes non-intentionally, will actually bring people to a spiritual decision just by what they read and what we smell. But guess what? To those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. So when we begin to get out of the bubble and recognize that wherever we go, we're a letter or we're an aroma, it is bringing people in to the gospel message in the daily rhythms and flow of our life when we engage that. But we have to be willing to recognize the bubble we're in and a desire to break out of that bubble and become the people of God that we're called to be. And it's not safe because sometimes people who don't like you will do mean things to you, will misrepresent you will say bad things to you. They may chop off your head, actually. And that's what happens when we begin to live out loud loud for the person of Jesus. Now, I, I too, know what it's like to live in the bubble. So let me tell you a little bit about my personal story, okay? So I, I came to Christ when I was 12 years old. Basically, the first Christian in my family. At the time, my mom and dad were not following Jesus. Let me give a disclaimer. They were wonderful parents. 
and they loved me and they made me the center of their world. But they were not actively following Christ at that time. So when I was 12 years old, I was born again on a Thursday night in the 80s. And one week later, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and had this encounter with God that shook me at 12 years old. And man, it was, I mean, from that point on, the, the, the internal pressure of the Holy Spirit was just causing me to go and do. And, and I had a wonderful pastor at the time that saw the calling of God on this little country guy from Decula. Now, who's heard of Decula? Man, it's a, it's a popular place now. But I assure you, in the mid-80s, people in Lawrenceville had never heard of Decula. That's how utterly remote that was. Perhaps even actually, it was the, it was the, maybe the, it was the, from the uttermost regions at that time was Decula. It was country. Let me tell you how country we were. My primary mode of transportation from about 11 years old to 14 years old was a horse. Yes, I would get, I would saddle my horse and I would go see my friends and I'd be galloping through downtown Decula Trey on my horse. That's how country it was. But my pastor at the time, he said, I, I see the call of God on your life. And we were going to a little Methodist church called, um, get this, Hinton Memorial United Methodist Church. It sounds more like a cemetery than it does a church. But that's where we all attended and God was doing amazing things in that church. And he let me preach my first sermon when I was 13 years old. Now, at risk of being very vulnerable with you, I'm going to let you listen to a short clip of that sermon I preached when I was 13 years old. If for no other reason, hopefully you will realize, oh, Lord, he has improved. All right. <laughs> just so you know, there, is, there has been hope along the way. But I just want you to listen to this to just, to get, just to get just a taste of where I was in that moment. So, Matthew, is that ready? Make sure the volume's up. Just listen. And that's, that's, where, I'm, that's where I'm going to say it. Man, God, God has so much force. He has so much force. And I, people say, I've heard it, like I said a lot ago, that people think it's not fun being a Christian. It's not fun being a Christian. I'll tell you what, it's not, it's not fun not being a Christian. That's the thing. It's true. True fun. True fun comes from being a Christian. Of course, you can have fun in the world, you know. I mean... Sex, drugs, all that, that's fun, temporarily, temporarily. But you know, you know what I'd rather do other than go out and get a prostitute? I would rather lay my hands on a sick person and watch them recover. You know what, that's, that's what I'd rather do. That, that, that's what I classify as fun. I'm not sure what y'all classify as fun, but that, that's, that's, that's about as fun as you can get. Amen. All right. So, that sermon is available for $199.99. We will get that to you and all the notes to go along with it. <laughs> so, I wanted to give you just a little taste of where I was at that moment in time and about what God was getting ready to do. Because shortly after that, I had said yes to go on a mission trip to Brazil and spend about a month. And it was in that foreign country, in that foreign place, that the bubble I was in went through a dramatic pop. When I was there, 
in that foreign place and never really been anywhere up to that point. I think we managed to get to Alabama or Florida once by that time, but had never really been very far. But it was in that place I came face to face with how ethnocentric I was even at 13 years old. You say, well, what does ethnocentric mean? Well, ethnocentric is simply the attitude that one's own group, ethnicity, or nationality is superior to others. So to be ethnocentric is to have this attitude that my own group or my own ethnicity or my own nationality is superior to others. It was there in that place that the bubble was popped and I was challenged racially and culturally in ways I had never been before. I was the product of the southern part of the United States. I was raised in a home with a grandmother and a great-grandmother that had some rather, let's say, um, prejudiceness going on. And I wouldn't have called myself prejudiced, but sometimes when you're around that, you absorb it and aren't really aware of it until the bubble gets popped. And I was down there, and I remember even at 13 years old, we had a van driver by the name of Demas, what's his name? And he was a black guy. Or he was a black, I mean, he wasn't just black, he was he was black, black, right? And he was really cool, and he would drive us everywhere. And I was in the van with him on one occasion, and he said, can I swing by the house? I need to grab something from my wife. And it was just he and I, so we went by his little apartment just outside of Rio de Janeiro, and we, and we went in, and his wife walked around the corner. Remember how, remember how black I told you he was? Black, black. Well, his wife walks around the corner, and she's white, white. I mean, she's like white with red hair. She couldn't be any more white. <laughs> and I remember looking at that and saying, remember, I'm 13 years old, raised in the South. You know, my great-grandmother, every time the Jeffersons would come on, would call up Atlanta TV5 and cuss them out because of the, of the Willets, if you know who they are. All right. So that's what I came up in. And I'm face-to-face with this black man married to this white woman, and they got these two beautiful kids running around, and I just don't know what to make of it. So we get done, we get the thing, we get back in the van. And I remember turning to Demas, I said, so what's up with that? And he looked at me and said, what's up with what? You know, that. I said, what? You know, that thing. And he, I mean, he's like complete oblivious to what I was saying. I said, you're black and she's white. And he looked at me with the most dumbfounded look and said, what are you talking about? He couldn't even frame up the conversation in a way that was meaningful to him. And in that moment, I knew, now I could not have articulated it this way, but my bubble just popped. Everything I knew to be true or assumed and thought came into quick contrast that, oh, my gosh, the world is a bigger place than Decula, Georgia. And perhaps I'm just a bit more ethnocentric than I thought. So I was challenged. My bubble was popped racially and culturally. My bubble was popped when I saw poverty. I remember we were there just a couple of days and we were eating at a restaurant, and the restaurant was right next to a little window. And this little girl walked up to the window. She was emaciated looking, and she was trying to sell these little flowers to earn money. She couldn't have been more than eight or nine years old. And she was knocking on the glass, basically trying to sell me a little flower to buy food. 
Again, I had never seen that before. My bubble popped when it came to what the rest of the world experiences. My bubble popped because it was in that place that I experienced what we call power evangelism. I saw God do things that, that up to that point I had never seen before. We would see evangelistic services that, that we were a part of in the, in the inner city of Rio de Janeiro. And I'll, and I'll never forget, we were there about a week and, and the evangelist preached and he, and he gave an altar call for salvation. And, and on that night, I ended up in the healing line. And this little lady walks up to me to get saved, Right? To get saved, but she's in the healing line. I didn't, she didn't know what she was doing, I guess. I'm just like, so I'm, I'm, and I'm trying to explain salvation to her. And then she holds up to me this withered hand with her finger just crooked like that. And she held it up like that. And I knew exactly what she wanted. I said, oh, no. I don't have the goods to deliver on this deal. And I remember just being so scared. I said, oh, God, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray for her. And I put my hands, I, I remember I put my hands over her hands, just two hands, and I'm praying, dear God, please right now, please come through, Jesus, Jesus. You know, I've just come, I've been praying, Lord, please touch this woman's hands. And I felt in that moment this, this warmth that came over me and this heat began to move through my body and just right in her hands and around hers, and I knew God was doing something. And then I let go of my hands and she just stretched her hand out. Just, just completely healed. <laughs> completely healed. Now, remember, I'm 13 years old. At that point, I want to lay hands on everything that's moving at that point. I had such a, such a wow, man, I'm on fire, you know, come and do this. But, I mean, my bubble in that place was popped significantly in all those areas, in all those areas. And I believe God wants to do that for all of us and continue to do that for all of us. See, there are, there are two factors that I believe that are designed by God, two important factors that are designed by God to pop our bubbles and get us into an Acts 1-8 reality where we're being moved by the Spirit and we're seeing signs and wonders and great fruit taking place. But in God's grace, he knows we can't do that on our own, can we? We can't find ourselves, we can't get out of a box on our own without him. God knows that we need help. These two factors. Now look at this in Acts 1.8. This is what we're called to, guys. This isn't just for the evangelist. This familiar verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now very quickly, what I want to give you, there was two factors that we find all throughout the book of Acts. There's an external pressure. And there is an internal pressure. And the combination of these two pressures caused the New Testament church, that body of believers, those 120 and then the 3,000 and so forth and so on, that were all in the room as a result of them right now. These two pressures on this first group of early Christians caused them to enter into this one-egged reality. The first pressure is obvious. It is the internal pressure. And we talk so much about that. The internal pressure is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. When we are filled with his Holy Spirit, we're not only filled with his power, but we are filled with his heart, we are filled with his burden, we are filled with his compassion, and we are moved by his love. 
When it says that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, well, exactly what is that power? We're not talking about electricity. We're not talking about something that doesn't have personality. We're talking about love. That's what we're talking about. What is the power of God? The power of God is his love. First John tells us that God is love. If you were to do a test of the DNA of God, you would find out that he is love. He doesn't do love. He actually is love. Therefore, everything that God does is motivated from the place of love because that's who he is and not just what he does. You see, so when we are filled with the internal pressure of the power of God, his love is going to prevail in our hearts and that love is going to manifest itself into people that are lost and broken. It's the byproduct of that. that. That internal pressure. Now listen, I will just say this. That alone should be sufficient, shouldn't it? Shouldn't that be enough? The internal pressure of God's love and Holy Spirit, that should be enough. But sometimes... It isn't enough. And God gives us a helping hand. Just like hamburger needs a helper, sometimes we need a helper. And the Holy Spirit comes as our helper. And he helps us in the most unique way. He helps us through external pressures called persecution and hardship. We're going to see a little bit in Acts chapter 8 in just a moment how this external pressure actually caused the gospel to get outside of Jerusalem. I dare say the case could be made and argued and perhaps brought to a clear conclusion that they may have never left Jerusalem on their own. They may have just camped right there, all is good. But something broke out. It was called persecution and difficulty which caused them to go. Let me just take just a moment here to speak on the importance of the role of suffering in our life. There's a gift that none of us ever want to open under the Christmas tree. Right? There are some gifts that we don't necessarily classify as gifts. It's called the gift of pain. The gift of pain, nobody wants to unwrap that gift under the tree. And God understands that. And God is very good to allow, to permit, to cause Whatever theological word you want to wrap around God's sovereignty in our life, you can use that word, but it happens to us. And there's something about pain and suffering that comes into our life that will perfect us in ways like nothing else will. Now, I realize that's not the greatest news in the world and not what you want to hear at Christmas time. But it doesn't negate the reality of that truth because it happens to every single one of us. And if I'm able to frame up the purposes and the higher purposes and value that comes through pain and suffering, I will be able to reap the manifold rewards of understanding what's going on and let it bear fruit in my life. Because suffering and pain will do one thing very powerful. It will cause us to enter into knowing Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. All of us will sign up for knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but very few of us will willingly and knowingly stand in line in the pain aisle, afflict me, afflict me. That's not what we're going to do. Therefore, God in his infinite wisdom and his shepherding nature will allow us to walk through the valleys of the shadow of death while his rod and his staff are comforting us. But in those moments, we are perfected. 
and we can draw closer to Jesus than any other times. I can tell you in my own life when I've gone through the deepest pain and the deepest suffering is when I have found myself the most transformed. And it works that way. But we need to frame up that properly so we can maximize the ultimate benefit of pain and suffering. If it's painful and difficult, why not figure out how to benefit from it rather than run away from it and resist it? Maybe there's a cooperation that we can do in the midst of it. That's super helpful. There's this interesting story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and most of us know it. It's about the thorn in the flesh. I like this story because this one story pops a lot of theological bubbles. We get everything nice and neat and tidy and how we think God is and how he operates. And then all of a sudden we read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and it's an ouch. It's the story of the thorn in the flesh. Now, you can read on your own. It's a very disturbing little account. But it says that God sends a messenger of Satan to afflict Paul with a thorn in the flesh. Now, we can debate all day long on what it was. Some people say it was, he had an eye problem. Some say the thorn was his wife. I mean, there's, that's actually a belief out there. We don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I think we can all agree that it brought suffering and pain into the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's not get distracted on what the thorn was. Let's look at what the thorn was doing so we don't miss the message that's being conveyed to us. Now, Paul, I like Paul because Paul does what any good charismatic or Pentecostal should do. Now, he doesn't use our words, but he does the same thing. When pain and suffering comes in our life, what do we do? We rebuke it in the name of Jesus. I come against you, devil, in the mighty name of Jesus. Leave me alone. Hallelujah. Right? And that's what we should do. In fact, Paul does it three times. So it's actually okay to rebuke the devil three times. But listen, my friends, listen. If this pain and suffering and hardship is continuing and you've already rebuked the devil, you've already repented of everything you know to repent of, you've already asked everybody on the planet to forgive you, you've like, you've like checked every box, right, on the list, and this thing is persisting, maybe we should step back for a moment and say, oh, God, are you doing something else? Because it, it, it causes us, like Paul says, there's a messenger of Satan. Let's just call that what it is, maybe a demon, right? But who was sending the demon? That's the disturbing part, isn't it? God. Oh, if we can step back from our pain and suffering and allow the possibility for a moment that God can be involved in this in some infinite, omniscient, sovereign way and saying, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? And then God's like, oh, now you're asking the right question. Now I'm going to teach you that my strength is going to be perfected in your weakness. And then we begin to enter into the deepest revelation that will ever come from God. It's oftentimes spawned out of a place of deep pain and suffering and hardship. But if we interpret it correctly, we see the purposes of God. 
So in this moment, in this cauldron, in the book of Acts, this New Testament pressure that's hitting the church, this internal pressure of the Holy Spirit, them coming alive in God, this external pressure coming in of the hardship and the persecution, we get to a chapter like the book of, like the book of Acts or Acts chapter 8 and we find out this is a result of those two pressures. Look at me, Acts chapter 8 verse 4. This is what happens. The believers who had been what? Scattered. You know what scattered means? They were running for their lives. They were running for their lives. But as they were scattered, they preached the word. Where? Everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Don't have time to unpack that, but it's important to note where Philip went was where no Jew ever wanted to go. He went to a people that nobody liked. He went there first. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. There he preached about the Messiah. The crowds listened to Philip and saw signs, the signs he did. All of them paid close attention to what he said. Evil spirits screamed and came out of many people. Many people who were disabled or who couldn't walk were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Do you see what happened? You see the combination of the internal pressure and the external pressure. It's affecting this man by the name of Philip who then would go and as he went, he would preach and he would testify of the things of God. People were getting born again. Evangelism was happening. Signs and wonders were, were, were taking place and fruit was happening and then great joy broke out in the city. Do we think God knows what he's doing? He's a great recipe writer. And we find out the recipe in the book of Acts. So these two kind of pressures will force us into a, a Acts 1-8 reality. Now you may be thinking, well, listen, I don't live in the New Testament church. I don't live in Jerusalem. This is not my reality. I, I believe, this is what I believe. I, I believe we have a unique challenge in our Western version of Christianity. I believe it's unique to us because of the level of prosperity that we experience here that causes us to be encased within our bubbles and can become so self-absorbed we're not thinking outside of our own bubble. There's an interesting parable found in Matthew chapter 13. We're not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. But in Matthew 13, it's the parable of the sower. Who is familiar with this parable? If you've been around church more than a couple of years, you know the parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow and he begins to sow seed and, and it begins to tell us about different types of ground the seed falls on. Now let's hone in on just one particular ground the seed fell on. Matthew 13 verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. So we find out a plain sense reading of this, that this seed fell on relatively good soil and it began to grow. But what was around that soil were thorns. And as the new plant began to grow, the thorns began to come in and began to choke the plant and kept it from bearing fruit. Now, I haven't researched this exactly, but this might be true, but don't hold me to it. I'm going to go out on a limb. But I think this might be one of the only parables that Jesus himself actually interprets for us. A majority of the parables, Jesus will speak and they just kind of hang out there for all kinds of application. But on this particular parable, he took the extra effort to actually interpret it for us. 
And this is how Jesus interprets this particular ground and this particular thorn. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 22, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, receives the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what happens in this passage, he defines for us what the thorns are. Now, every one of us, everybody in the world, to some degree or another, lives in the thorns. But what I propose to us this morning is that in our experience of Western Christianity, we really live amongst the thorns. It's thorns plus, plus, plus where we live. And what are the thorns? The thorns are the cares of this life and the concerns of this life. And the worries of this life. If you are like me, I'm receiving input continually around the worries and the cares of this life. We are plugged in to various communication streams that are, serve, that are serving to fuel that and bring all kinds of fear and worry into our life. If you've not watched the news lately, you don't really have to be a prophet to discern that much of this is driven on the back of fear and anger and hatred and anxiety. And it's fueling that one thorn that pokes us continually. It's driving that, the cares and the worries of this life. I wake up in the morning and I'm assaulted by concerns of how much money is in my checkbook. Oh, my gosh, how am I going to pay this? What is Kim Jong-un doing in North Korea right now? Oh, my, he could be getting nuclear weapons. I mean, that and that and everything in between is continually impacting us and causing us to operate Remember I pointed out earlier, one of the things that inhibits us entering into an Acts 1-8 reality is an overemphasis on our need and our desire for safety and security and protection. I believe because of the cares of this world and its life and anxieties that are perpetrated in our own heart, because that causes us to retract ourselves and build safety nets all around us because of this one thorn of the cares of this life that poke us. Brothers and sisters, don't be naive to the reality that we are living in the thorns. And those thorns want to poke you and they want to choke out the life of God. The second thorn and the deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, my goodness. There's never been a time in human history that so much is accessible to us without any capital to pay for it. In other words, you can have your cake and eat it too and not have the money in the bank to pay for it. Think about it. We don't ask anymore how much things cost. We ask how much a month will this cost. Do you see the difference in those two questions, right? There's a big difference in asking the question how much does this cost versus how much does this cost a month, you see. In other words, the deceitfulness and the allure of wealth we buy one thing and we enjoy that for a minute and then we see somebody else or something better and then we begin to work and scurry how, we, how can we achieve that next thing. How can we get more and more and more and more. 
And that's not necessarily bad. There's actually an altruistic aspect of this that could be good that it's important to save for a rainy day. But again, if we have the cares of this life influencing us, then I'm going to think, oh, I've got to get more of my 401k. More, do I have are, are, are all my Roth IRAs for? And we, just, and, we get, and we get obsessed. Am I going to have enough to take care of myself when I get old? And I'm, I'm praying to God that one of my kids are, are, are going to be willing to change my diaper one day. But if they're not, do I have enough money to pay somebody to come and do it? And you'll find on that merry-go-round, there's never going to be enough, is there? There's never going to be enough. So the allure and the deceitfulness of wealth, the deceitfulness is this. Deceit means a lie that the enemy wants to propagate in our thinking that we don't have enough. We don't have enough. There needs to be more and more and more and more. And when we believe that lie, we allow that thorn to enter into our heart. And thus, the end result of these thorns are to do what? It makes us unfruitful. What does unfruitful mean? There's two aspects of that. It means we are unfruitful in demonstrating the character of the person of Jesus Christ. We can never be fully like him. To be who he is, to act like who he is, and to do what he does. You see this? So these thorns serve as a demonic strategy to keep us locked into a bubble, if you will, and never get out of that bubble and enter into an Acts 1-8 reality and to have those moments where we get to experience being shocked into reality of how ethnocentric I really am, to be shocked into the reality of how, how poor people are around the world. What's really going on? To be shocked into the reality that the Father is looking for a people to manifest his glory through as we go out, not stay in. You see, we're going to see the greatest power of God, not when we stay in, but when we go out. That's why the concluding chapter in the book of Mark tells us that these signs shall what? accompany those who believe. It means these signs and wonders will go with us, not stay with us. They go with us. So when we talk about, my friends, being a, a people who are serious about taking the gospel from the neighborhoods to the nations, every one of us are called into that reality. Every one of us are called. It may not look like a Trey Lewis. It may not. It may look like something completely different. But it's taking the gospel where they go. I sit and I look at the Clarks sitting out there, and one of the things that they did that was really cool is that they, they started a bridge club, and, and they were playing basically bridge with people. And while they're playing bridge together, they're like sharing the gospel and bringing hope and healing. That's clever, and, and that's unique that we become his letter and we become his aroma when we recognize that God has put us into the world to be a message of of life and to a message of death as well to all those who will read us and all those who will smell us. So I can invite you to stand. How many of you would say in this moment, I think this is a very serious moment in time that we can address things with with the Lord. Can we acknowledge for a moment, yeah, I think I might be in a bubble. To to some degree, I think I'm in a bubble. And then begin asking yourself some questions. Number one, 
How's the internal pressure in your life? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you be, being filled with the Holy Spirit? When was, when was the last time you, you would say, I had a significant encounter with God where the Holy Spirit shed the love of God abroad in my heart? How's that internal pressure? How, how, are, how are we interpreting the external pressures in our life? Have you lost your voice rebuking the devil and these things are persisting? Maybe, Lord, are, are, you, are you doing something else? Lord, help me to see, how are you, how are you processing that? And like that, where, how are these thorns affecting you? Where are the cares of this life and the worries of this world, how are they affecting your heart? To what degree are your actions determined by fear and anxiety and not faith and truth? Are you on the hamster wheel? Because it never feels like it's enough. It's never enough. You can't get satisfied. No matter how much you have or whatever that is. As your eyes are closed just for a moment, just let's just take just a moment. Just ask the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit comes to do two things. He he comes to convict us, but he also comes to convince us. The Holy Spirit is the one who must convince us of these things in order for true transformation to happen. And if you would just say, says, Lord, I, I, I stand before you this afternoon at 12.01 p.m. on these last few moments of the, the month of November, I said, Lord, I want to get out of the bubble. I want to get, I want to, I desire to enter in to an Acts 1-8 reality. That's what I want for my life. I desire to be a letter that's being read and an aroma to be smelled that represents you well, Jesus, and the world around me. If that's you, could you put your hand and say, yes, Lord, I want to get out of the bubble and I want to be in a 1-8 reality. Just put your hand. That's, that's you. Just put your hand really high. Just say, well, I want that for my life. All right. Keep your hand up for a second. I'm not going to make you move the second time. But you got one hand up. Go ahead and join it with the other hand. Put that up too. Just say, Holy Spirit, come. Help me. I repent, Lord. I repent, God, of being a little too self-absorbed. I repent, Lord, for believing certain lies about certain things. Forgive me, oh God. Forgive me, oh God, I want more. I want to represent you well, God. I want to, I want to walk. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the call in our life. We want to represent you well. We want to bring glory to your name. We want to, we want to honor you. We want to put your reputation ahead of our reputation. We want to put your desires ahead of our desires. Lord, we, we desire, Lord, come Holy Spirit. Bring down the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Oh God, Holy Spirit, come. Create such an internal pressure on our life. Baptize us in love and in fire. Transform us. Motivate us. Move us, God. Move us forward. Help us, God, not to always just rebuke the devil, but to cooperate with the pain and hardship in our life to see the greater thing you're bringing us into and revealing us.
revealing to us. Lord, make us a spiritual family that's marked by a people who doesn't stay in, but a people who goes out, who goes to the cubicle next door, who goes to the neighbor next door, who goes to the hardest and darkest places on the planet. God, mark us as a people who go out and not just stay in and play it safe. Oh, God, that we would be a people that would boldly go courage and confidence. We bless you. We thank you. Let's just take a moment, sing this one last worship song. and Just let's allow the word of Christ to, just to dwell richly inside of us.